I'll hand over to Bridget. We're going to hear from the Bible again. We're in the middle of a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And tonight we're going to listen to Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 48, which is on page 684 of the Bibles in your pews. Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 48. Let us listen for the word of God. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Thanks be to God for his word. Thanks, Bridget. I wonder whether you know this lady. Her name is uh, Koi Ten Boom. I have to say she is a remarkable, remarkable lady. She was uh, born in 1892. She is the third child. Uh, she was actually the first uh, woman watchmaker. But she's not known for that. What, is she, what she's known for is two things, really. Firstly, the hiding place. Uh, so you may have heard that with her family, in, in, a, in a space about the size of a, a wardrobe, during World War II, she hid many, many Jews to prevent them from going to the concentration camps. The second thing she's known for is really the way that she approached time inside the concentration camp. So with her sister Betsy, she was taken to a place called Ravensbrück in Germany, and there she was tortured, she was starved, she did uh, sort of back-breaking labor, she suffered sort of um, rats and infestations of vermin, and throughout all of that, her trust and her faith in God was rock solid. As her sister died, these are the words she said, There's no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. 
And by God's grace, by some clerical error, Corrie Tembe was released. She survived the concentration camp. She spent her years visiting up to 60 nations and just sharing this amazing message that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. She's a remarkable lady. But what I love about Corrie Ten Boom is I think that she is a walking, talking illustration of the Sermon on the Mount. She's a woman who is poor in spirit. She recognizes it. It's all about God, not about her. She's definitely meek. She was a peacemaker. She was a, certainly the, the, the light to the world. In the concentration camps, you know, she was the one who led Bible studies, bringing the gospel to the people in those camps. Uh, she didn't retaliate. She turned the other cheek, and yes, she loved her enemies. There's one extraordinary story of how, after her release, uh, she met one of the prison guards who had tortured her. Can you imagine that meeting? And what did Corrie Ten Boom do? She offered her hand. And she greeted that man, and she shook his hand, and she gave him that sign of forgiveness. That is loving your enemy, isn't it? Look at these extraordinary words that she writes. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts bored through me, I saw the sin in them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. Jesus, I I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And so I discovered it's not on on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. And when he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command the love itself. Wow. She's a remarkable lady. Because she loves Jesus, she's been equipped with the love to love her enemies. See, the Sermon on the Mount tonight is really quite challenging yet again. It's a tough sermon, tough to preach, tough to hear. I hope this sermon series isn't leaving you discouraged or demoralized. I hope actually it's growing your faith because you can see how wonderful your relationship with Jesus could be. And I hope this sermon is helping you to fix your eyes on Jesus because, you know, I can't do this, you can't do this, but Jesus has done it. And if you're in Jesus, you are clothed in his righteousness and you've got his Holy Spirit and his power to help you to strive to keep this Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Corrie Ten Boom again says these words, When we are powerless to do a thing, it's a great joy that we can come and step inside the ability of Jesus. We're powerless, we step inside the ability of Jesus, and he helps us to do this. Tonight's talk is on this. It's on radical relating. Because your life consists of relationships and so does mine. Some people that you relate to you really like. Your family, your friends, your loved ones, your work colleagues, you like them. It's easy to relate to them most of the time. Some people are just neutral, you know, you don't like them, you don't dislike them, you just pass pleasantries. But there are some people that you come across, and yeah, they're enemies. You know, they've hurt you, maybe they've abused you, maybe they've wronged you, and there's that tension between you. So let me get some trivial examples. How do you relate to the person 
who constantly cancels on you or who is always half an hour late. How do you relate to that kind of person? How do you relate to the person who has wronged you or slandered your name or abused your trust? How do you relate to the person who takes advantage of you, just takes, takes, takes and never gives anything back? How do you relate to the person at work who keeps making snide comments about Christians? Or or that family member who's held a grudge against you for, say, 10 years? How do you relate to them? And Jesus demands radical relating. You see, when we relate to people, we should not have lies and manipulation and bitterness and revenge and slander and jealousy and hatred. Jesus talks about relating in a way that brings glory to him. I've got three words for you tonight, how you relate to people. First word is truth. Consistent truthfulness with your words, with your speech. You actually do what you say. Look at verse 33 again. Again, you've heard it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oath you've made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, if it's God's throne, or by earth, if it's his footstool. Down to verse 36, verse 7. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. All he's saying is, is be people who keep your word. Be people who are honest. Be people who do what you say. And I read these verses, and my first thoughts were, wow, those verses are so hard for Generation Y. You know, they have no yes, they have no no. It depends on how they're feeling at the time. There's no commitment. But actually, these verses are tough for all of us, aren't they? To keep your word, to do what you say. Because we live in a world that is deceptive and deceitful with our words. The media is full of speculation and exaggeration and hyperbole. The advertising industry, it promises you so much, and then down at the bottom in font, font size 4, they're the terms and conditions. Our politicians make all these promises they never keep. But what about you? See, we honour our word when it suits us. We're non-committal. I think the thing that struck me about Sydney is that people don't accept invitations until they've worked out whether it's the best offer. We don't say yes or no. We're just non-committal. Or we embellish our words, don't we? You know, the fish we caught is this big, and I've got this many friends, and there were 500 people in church on Saturday night. We just embellish our words. Why? Why do you overemphasize? I reckon it's because it's about pride, isn't it? It's bringing attention to yourself or making yourself look good. Or we exaggerate so we display to the world on Facebook how we're feeling to get the sympathy. We communicate to people and we leave bits out, important bits out, so we can skew the information. As a preacher, I'm tempted to nick other people's illustrations and make them my own. It's extraordinary how loose with the truth we really are. I'm not just talking about intentional lying. I'm talking about just that carelessness with the truth. One commentator said there's an urgent truth truth shortage in our world. And there is. Our world longs for truth. 
we long just to be able to take somebody at their word. And that's why these verses are so important. Verse 33, you've heard it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths. This is not a direct quote from the Old Testament. It alludes to Exodus 20 and Leviticus 19 and Numbers 30. But the Bible doesn't condemn oaths. Oaths are just when you say, I promise to do something in the name of God. An oath can be a good thing. So you know, Deuteronomy 10 says, fear the Lord your God, serve him, hold fast to the oaths in his name. It's a good thing to say, I promise to do this. But if you make a promise, be very careful unless you break it. Numbers 30, when a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he mustn't break his word. He must do everything he says. Just do the truth, keep the truth, speak the truth. And what the Pharisees did with these oaths, it was extraordinary. They came up with a kind of code for truthfulness. So if you said, I I promise in God's name to keep it, that was a binding oath. But if you didn't mention the name God, it wasn't binding at all. So if I said to you as a Pharisee, you know, I I promise uh, in the name of Jerusalem to buy your car. I wouldn't have to keep that oath at all because I hadn't mentioned the name God. But if I said I promise uh, toward Jerusalem, uh, towards God's place to buy your car, I'd have to keep that word. It's just ridiculous. It's, all, it's, a, it's, a, it's a word game. It's a mind game. So when someone makes a promise to you, you're always listening very carefully to, for the get-out clause. It's kind of like when you make a promise with your, your fingers crossed behind your back and you're saying, I don't have to keep that promise because you know, I've done this symbol. And I reckon we do that all the time. We're very careful with the words that we use so we don't have to keep our promises. Always give yourselves a get-out clause. Uh, when someone says to me, I swear by anything, it's kind of like the, the truth radar is up. Why do they feel the need to say the words, I swear by? It's almost like you can't really take me at my word most of the time. A guy called Helmick Thielica said something similar. He said this, Whenever I utter the formula, I swear by God, I'm really saying... Now I'm going to mark off an area of absolute truth and put walls around it to cut it off from the muddy floods of untruthfulness that ordinarily overruns my speech. In fact, I'm saying more than this. I'm saying that people are expecting me to lie from the start. And just because they're counting on my lying, I have to bring up these big guns of oaths and words of honor. Isn't that right? When someone says, I swear by you, are actually more suspicious because we play word games all the time. Our son Sam often says, are you telling the truth? A five-year-old is always questioning whether we're telling the truth. That's just the world that we live in. And that's why Jesus' words are so radical. Verse 34, but I tell you, do not swear at all. Uh, Don't take this literally like the Quakers do. He's not saying you can't sign an affidavit. He's not saying you can't take an oath. He's just saying you should be so truthful so full of truth that you don't need to take an oath. So don't swear by heaven, it's God's throne, or by earth, it's God's footstool, or by Jerusalem, because that's the city of God. And don't swear by your head, because you can't change one hair from black to white. He's just saying God stands behind everything. The whole world belongs to God. It doesn't matter what you swear by, it's always in God's name. 
Verse 37, let your yes be yes and your no, no. The best way to summarize this is, is, is like this. He's saying, say what you mean and mean what you say. As a Christian, say what you mean and mean what you say. Be people of your word. As a church, isn't that what you want to be known for? Honest people? Truthful people? People who say what they mean and mean what they say. It's extraordinary. We claim to have found the truth in Jesus Christ, and yet our words are so often far from the truth. I reckon it would be so beautiful if as a church there were never any embellishments in our storytelling. We never embellished anything. And sure, you might not be the center of attention for that story, but it's not about you. Can you imagine if we kept every promise, even when it was personally inconvenient? And when we say we'll do something, we'll do it. And you don't have to pretend that you know everything. You know, when someone's sharing a story and you pretend that you know because you don't want to feel left out. And we'd stop using superlatives like fabulous and fantastic and people would actually believe us. And people would know that we don't lie, we don't slander, we don't exaggerate, and we don't embellish. It would be amazing if this church was known as people not just of this word or the Bible, but people who kept their word. We say what we mean, and we mean what we say. That's the first word, truth. That would transform relationships. The second word for you is this, grace. Costly graciousness, even when somebody wrongs you. Verse 38, you've heard it was said, eye for eye, and tooth for tooth. And that's kind of right. It's a mixture of Exodus 21 and Leviticus 24 and Deuteronomy 19. Now what God was trying to do with that law, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, he was trying to define justice and trying to restrain revenge. So here's a scenario in the Old Testament. Somebody trespasses on my land. So I get him back by going and beating him up. Now he gets me back by killing me. Now my family get his family back by killing the whole family. It's that kind of spiral downwards and downwards and downwards, more and more and more violence. And so God says eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It's supposed to be restrictive to prevent further violence. And what the Pharisees did was they, 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 took, they, they changed it from being restrictive to being prescriptive and said, well, if somebody has hurt me, then I have to hurt them back. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. They took it literally. And so if I was a Pharisee, I, I would have this law and I set my boundaries. You know, I can be bitter towards you and I can, uh, I can hold resentments against you. I can hate you in my heart. I can get even with you. And that's okay. And Jesus says, no. Verse 39, I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Again, please don't misinterpret this. He's not saying be a total pacifist. He's not saying never show any resistance. He's not saying to you know, the woman who is uh, suffering domestic violence, oh, just let him punch you again. He's not saying that. He's not saying you know, let the beggar t- take, take your last penny. He's saying do not resist an evil person. What's he saying there? He's saying... Accept the injustice, accept injustice, never hit back, but show costly graciousness. 
It might mean personal sacrifice. It might be costly to you, but revenge, retaliation, litigation is not part of following Jesus because revenge never works. Now, you know that's true, don't you? Revenge never works. Hate multiplies hate. You get more and more violence. So how do you respond when somebody insults you? Or someone longs you? Oh, you might not revenge with your fists, but you know, subtly we do revenge, don't we? The, the cold shoulder, or the stony silence, or the bitching about them and uh, disguising it as fair points. So what will it look like to apply what Jesus says? He gives us four examples. The first one is about when somebody insults you personally. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. A strike on the right cheek is just that sharp backhand slap. It's, it, it's not physical, it's actually the, the calculated gross insult. You know, the words that wind you up or the, the one-sided story that paints you in such terrible light that you want to get back. And the natural response is that blood is uh, boiling and you sue for damages and you seek revenge, but the supernatural response is totally different. You don't get even. You swallow your pride, absorb the insult, and give all your rights for revenge. Well, someone at this church uh, told lies about me. They, they, they circled a story that was not true, I could have retaliated, I could have got angry, I could have slandered them. I chose to say nothing and just trust that God was a God of justice. What about your boss who takes advantage of you and he doesn't recognize your work and please don't start plotting his downfall. Keep turning to work, be patient, be gracious, don't get even. Did you not help me in that time? The Lord Jesus Christ himself. 1 Peter chapter 2, you know, he didn't retaliate, but he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. There is a God in heaven who is full of justice. Trust him because vengeance belongs to him. What about when you're ripped off? Verse 40. If someone wants to sue you, someone takes you to court and they want to take the shirt off your back, you could fight him to death. That's what the world would do. But if you're a gracious believer of Jesus, what do you do? You let him have your cloak as well. You're prepared to be wrong for the sake of the gospel. You're prepared to suffer, uh, suffer loss even for the sake of Jesus. Let me read this passage from Romans chapter 12. Do not repay evil with evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it's mine to avenge, and I will repay, says the Lord. You see, when someone rips you off or sues you, you don't retaliate. You don't get even. Again, another personal story. Recently, I lent my car to somebody, not in this church, somewhere else, somebody else. And they'd racked up a, a massive toll uh, bill and left it empty of petrol. And my natural reaction was to try and demand the money back. 
Or, or to think, oh, I'd never let my car again. <laughs> but the godly reaction is to say, no, that's okay. Let him take the car again. What about with your time? Verse 41, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. So the Roman soldiers would get people to carry their baggage for one mile. And Jesus says, don't be insulted by that. Go double the distance. Go two miles. Do it cheerfully, not begrudgingly. As a Christian, go beyond what people ask of you. Uh, what about when people ask for money? Verse 42, uh, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And don't foolishly go around giving all your money away. There's one story of a, of a student in Cambridge who basically was penniless because he gave all his money to alcoholics. That was not wise. But I reckon most of us are so far away from that man in Cambridge, most of us are just stingy with what we've got. So when somebody is in need, we don't think, what can I give them? We ask, first of all, uh, will they pay me back? And what's in it for me? And Jesus says, don't be tight-fisted. Give to the one who asks. Deep generosity, give cheerfully, give willingly, and give wisely. And then look at the church, and we've got wardrobes stuffed full of clothes that we never wear. We've got pantries stuffed full of food that we never eat, and we chuck it away. We've got cars that just sit in driveways and not being used. Holiday homes that sit empty for most of the year. And when people ask, well, people don't ask. Because sadly, Christians are not known for being generous and giving. And the bottom line is this. If you understand God's grace to you, if you understand the costly graciousness of God to you, you'll be marked by graciousness to other people, even when they've wronged you. It's not about whether it's fair. It's not about getting even. It's not about your rights, because if you're in Christ, you have no rights. If you're in Jesus, you've given up your rights. No right to retaliate. No right to your possessions. They belong to God. No right to your time or your money. It all belongs to God. Take up your cross. Follow Jesus and show grace. And here's the third word in terms of relationships. Love. Truth, grace, and love. So I'm going to ask you, who do you love? Who do you demonstrate that you love them towards? I tell you what I love. I, I, I love people who like me. I love my family. I love my church family. I love people who can do something for me. I love nice, harmless people. But what about the person who walked into this building and they don't quite tick those boxes? You know, they might be of a different social class to us, or not my type, or not sporty enough, or not intellectual enough, or not trendy enough. Do I really love them? Oh, sure, I'll give them the superficial love. I'll give them the, the name tag and the nod. But deep down, I wonder whether we're asking, oh, somebody else can love them. What about your enemies, the people who have really hurt you and harmed you and slandered you, the people who hate the church, you people who hate Jesus, how do you respond to them? Well, the Pharisees had this limited love. Verse 43, you've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. They totally misquote the Old Testament. The Old Testament does not say that. 
Leviticus 19 verse 18 says, Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you see what they've done with that, that command? They've changed it to suit themselves. They've taken off the words as yourself. They've lowered the standard a bit. And let's love only your neighbor. And by their neighbor, they mean just the other Jews. And let's add that second phrase, and hate your enemy. You won't find that phrase anywhere in the Old Testament. But what they've done, they've taken that as the, as the implication. If you love your neighbor, then surely you hate your enemy. And here's the problem. They totally misunderstood who their neighbors were. Do you remember that story of the Good Samaritan? All those religious people walked past that man in need. And the religious people are asking, who is my neighbor? Tell me who I'm called to love. Just tell me, give me the list and I can work at loving them. And Jesus turns around and says, no, 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 go and be a neighbor. Whoever comes across your path, whoever they are, whether you like them or whether you hate them, whether you love them or whether they're your enemy, you're called to be a neighbor to them. You're called to show love towards them. Not limited love, but unlimited love. Not love people that you like or people who pay you back, but love everybody who comes across your path. And I reckon that's a crazy, crazy love. Verse 44 again. I tell you, love your enemies. Love the people who've hurt you and slandered you and written vicious letters about you. Love them and pray for those who persecute you. It's that Cory Ten Boom handshake. That's love in action. You know when Nelson Mandela was inaugurated as president, who were the people sitting on the front row? The prison guards. That's love in action. It's the, the greeting the person at the door. That's love in action. You know, verse 47, if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? The pagans do that, but when you greet the person at the door who has wronged you and who's hurt you and written vicious letters about you, that's love in action. This love is not a romantic love, it's not an emotional love, it's, it's agape love. It's that determined, deliberate, intelligent, sacrificial love that's costly. You know, it's buying the clothes for the, the person who has really wronged you, but you love them and you care for them. It's cooking meals or offering accommodation for people you don't like. It's giving time to the person who you know will just sit down and slander you. Loving people expecting nothing in return. Now, why should you love people? Why should you love your enemies? My first thought was, well, that's what Jesus did. Do you know when Jesus went to Calvary? And the people not just hated him, but they crucified him. What did he pray? Father, get revenge on those people. He said, Father, forgive them. He prayed for his persecutors. But that's not what Jesus says here. Why should we love these people? He said, if you love them, two things, you'll be more like your heavenly father. Verse 45 If you love them and pray for them, you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Because God's got that that unlimited crazy love. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Our God in heaven is not a God who who causes a rain to fall on just his Christian people. 
You ever thought about that? That why is it that the unbelievers might be happy and healthy and have lots of food because God has been gracious to them and God loves them? And we're to exhibit and to model that kind of sacrificial, gracious, selfless love. Love your enemies so you'll be sons of your Father in heaven. You'll have his character. You'll show his, his character and, and, and we'll show his, his colors in, if you want. But it's totally humbling. When we love people like that, when we show forgiveness and acts of kindness to somebody who hates us, the gospel is very powerful. But there's a second reason. You'll be like your father. The second reason is that you'll be different from the world. Did you spot that? Verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Or not even the tax collectors doing that, even those hated, loathed tax collectors, they love people too. And if you just love your brothers, verse 47, what more are you doing than the pagans? He's saying if, if you just love people in your church and your little holy huddles and you carefully ignore other people, you're just like the world. But Christian love is crazy, radical love. Let me say, nothing wrong with having a few close friends and loving family well. That's right, that's proper. But please don't think you're modeling this crazy love because you have a few people from church that you really like around for dinner from time to time. And please don't think that you're modeling this crazy love because, wow, you give it some time to go for a run with people that you really like. Crazy love is when you, you give up your time and you give up your energy and your money to spend time with people that hate you and have wronged you and have hurt you. That's crazy love. See, Jesus is asking us to stoop to the standards of the kingdom, not the standards of the world. I think it's deeply sad to hear people say that people outside the church love them more than people inside the church. And I find it deeply sad that so few people today have in their testimony that they were loved into the kingdom. The love of the Christian who took time with them. Martin Lord-Jones says Christians' love should, should be more than the world's love. And I've been hard thinking this week, is my love more than the world's love? A more that can't be explained just by my nature or my personality, but a more that is explained by the Holy Spirit living in me and I'm living for Jesus. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Forgive the personal stories tonight, but there's a, a guy in London, in my last year in London. He lived about five doors away from church and he hated the church he was a very wealthy man. Uh, he was deliberately put on lavish parties on the same time as all the big church events to take up all the parking spots. He would rip down posters. Uh, he was really abusive. And I'd bump into him, you know, twice a week just walking down the road. And I found it really, really hard to love him. A guy I was praying with regularly prayed one day, Paul... Uh, dear, dear God, help Paul to love this man. It's one of those prayers that you find it hard to say amen to. And do you know what? I didn't feel any different towards him. I didn't feel any different towards him. When I saw him, you know, I still was, was disliking the fact that he hated the church. I didn't feel different, but I did act differently. 
As I prayed, help me to love him, I started to act differently towards him. I would smile at him rather than frown at him. Simple things like that. When his wife became very sick, I wrote a card to him. It's just a tiny, tiny example of how when you pray for somebody who has wronged you, it changes the way you act towards them. It's very hard to pray for somebody without growing in your love towards them. It's hard to sit down and pray that you love somebody and then when you see them, you slander them. And please don't wait until you feel love towards somebody before you start praying for them. See, the way that you'll love your enemies is to pray for them, to look at Jesus, to try and be like your Father in heaven, to be different from the world. Because Jesus says in verse 48, a breathtaking statement, be perfect therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now I can't do that and you can't do that. But look at that deep inward righteousness that you have in Jesus. Look at Jesus and ask him to help you do it. So what will relationships in this church look like? Three words tonight. Truth. Say what you mean, mean what you say. Grace. The way that you respond to someone who's wronged you is radically different. And love. Love in action. Costly, deliberate, intelligent, selfless love. Let me pray. Lord, you tell us to be perfect, and we can't do that. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to strive to know Jesus better. Lord, help us to have our eyes fixed on him, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, equip us with your spirit to, to live for you. Help us to be careful with our words. Help us to mean what we say. Forgive us for times where we embellish or exaggerate or lie. Help us, Lord, to give up all rights and not to seek revenge or retaliation. Help us to show grace even to those who have hurt us. And Lord, we need your help to love our enemies. Help us, Lord, to be people of prayer who ask for your help to love those who have wronged us. And we ask all this because we love you and we want the glory to go to you. In Jesus' name.